So, this morning, um, we are starting a, a brand new series. And uh, as we were talking about, you know what, what are we going to go after and, and what conversations are we going to have on the other side of Easter, um, one of the questions that was raised up was, uh, you know, on Easter we have all these people that show up that aren't normally around. Um, it's kind of like New Year's resolutions at a gym, where it's like right at around Easter or Christmas, like the place is just flooded with all these people. You're like, who's that guy, you know? Um, and then it kind of tapers off, you know, so like February, the gym's pretty much empty again. Um, that's kind of how it is with Easter. And, and so we were talking about, you know, if that's how it's going to be, and that's the way it is, uh, what conversations, if we have like three, four weeks, um, just a few weeks to, to, to share with people and, and to have a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus and this intersection of life and faith, what, what would those be? You know, what, what conversations would we have? And uh, as we were thinking about it, and, and as I was thinking about it, um, it became very clear very early on that as I thought about those conversations, um, they didn't look anything like a list of do's and don'ts. You know, that that would be something that would come much, much later. But that there's such more, there's such a better conversation, more important conversations to have about life and about faith that is so uh, foundational um, to, to life and to faith. The questions that I think our souls are are asking repeatedly. And uh, that really is around the, the kind of where we landed was, was moving away from the, the question of what does God want me to do and, and asking the more foundational question is of, of who has God created me to be. And, and the longer that I journey and the more stories I get to hear and people I get to know, uh, the more convinced I am that this is a question that plagues the hearts and the souls and the lives of so many people. And, and, and so many people are asking this question day in and day out, and so many of their actions and inaction is motivated by how they understand themselves or how they don't understand themselves. And one of the, one of the like, we just don't know who we are, many of us. Some people do, but you're an anomaly if that's you. Um, most people struggle with this question uh, all through their life, Christian and non-Christian. It's a question that so many people are asking. And if there is a season of life where we see this like the most clearly, it's got to be middle school. You could not pay me enough money to relive middle school. <laughs> middle school was awful. You know, and I used to work with middle school kids, and it's just, it's like that season of life, I think, where we're like, for the first time, like, like kids are starting to ask, like, who am I? Who am I going to be? What am I going to look like? How am I going to act? Who are my friends? And it's just like this foundational time. It's so awkward because nobody knows where to land. You know, and, and you, you don't even have to remember what middle school is like to see this. Like, just look at middle school students. Like, it's awkward in every way, right? You're, you're physically developing in, like, disproportionate ways. Like, you've got guys with, like, their hands are, like, down to their ankles because their torso hasn't developed yet, you know? And, like, in the same classroom, you've got kid, guys who look like they're nine, and a guy who looks like he's 24, and they're both on the football team, which is totally not fair. And it, it's just, like, it's just an awkward time. And, uh, and it, it's so much of the reality, I would say, if I could put, like, one word on middle school, it's, like, insecurity. Right? Insecurity. Like, and, and girls overcompensate with volume, you know, and the guys overcompensate with trying to be too cool. But everybody's asking, like, who am I? And nobody seems really sure. Like, when I was in middle school, I had, like, several personas that I would put out there that I wanted to be kind of perceived as, but none of them were consistent with each other. And I, I had outfits to go with these personas. Like, not metaphorically, like, physical outfits. Um, so I remember I had these, uh, these fila like tennis jumpsuits. You remember those? 
Philo when Philo was big. Maybe it still is. I don't know. But I had these, I had these jumpsuits that I'd wear, and I didn't play tennis. I never played tennis. But I had friends who played tennis, and I wanted to be cool with like, them, and I liked their outfit, and so I got a couple. And I would wear these outfits because uh, I wanted to be perceived that way. You know, but then I would have, like, I also had, like, my skater get up. And so, like, I had, you know, the graphic tee and the Janko jeans and the Vans and, like, the wallet with the, the chain, you know. And, and I also did not skate, you know, but I looked like a skater. Uh, I don't know why. I just, that's, I liked looking like that some days. To, to show you just how, like, messed up I was at this time, like, I also had a number of Sean John t-shirts and a FUBU backpack. FUBU. Like, I didn't know what that stood for. Like, I thought for us, by us was like, for the people, by the people, you know, but it's not. Um, so I had just a serious crisis, like identity crisis in middle school, and I really didn't know who I was. And so, like, I would be in the hallway, and I could play the bully really well. Um, but then, like, within the same hour, I could play the teacher's pet in the classroom. You know, and then in the locker room, I was like the foul-mouthed jock. And then at church, I was like the good church kid. Uh, and, and it was like I was copying and pasting like these different versions of myself because I didn't know who I was. And I was trying to kind of be everything to everybody. Like what I thought people wanted from me and expected of me, like I just conformed to whatever that was. And I see this all the time. And I like to think that most of us outgrow this. But I'm not so sure that we do. Like, it seems like the older that we get, like, we just get really, we get a lot better at hiding it and dealing with it maybe in different ways. But it seems like so many people are still, like, looking to answer this question with their lives. Like, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? And so we look to, I see people looking to external things to answer this question all the time. Relationships, jobs, you name it. Because they don't know exactly who they are, right? And we begin to think, you know what, what I need, what I really need, what I really need is a new job, right? One that doesn't make me want to swerve into oncoming traffic every morning, right? One I don't hate quite so much. If I just had a, a, new, a new job, a different job, one that I liked, like, that'd be it. Like, I'd be good, right? Or what I really need is, is, is a new relationship, right? These people that, you know, the people that are always in a relationship, you know, you know, the guys and the girls who are, like, always in a relationship and they just jump from relationship to relationship, and they always say they're going to stay single for a while, but they never do. And they jump into it, and you're like, oh, yeah, what? You know, it's like, and the sad part is, like, they just don't see themselves without somebody by their side. There's something about their value and their self-worth and who they are that has to be coupled with another person. Or do you see people, and, and they'll, they'll say things like, you know what, uh, what I need is a new context. I need, maybe it's not a new job. I need a new city. Right? I need a bigger city. My link is too small. I need something with culture, better live music scene. Right? If I could just live in wherever, Los Angeles, Chicago, whatever it is, then, then I'd be happy. Right? Or, or, you know, this, this marriage isn't doing it for me anymore. Right? I, I think I made a mistake or the feelings just aren't, aren't there. Or whatever it is, right? inevitably, you guys know the story. It, we see it over and over and over again. And so many people, is they finally get what they think they want, and they're n- just as miserable. Like nothing ever changes. Like, the core question that they're asking isn't answered. Right? And so is it any wonder, right, what, why what we're doing in these religious contexts and our religious activities can seem so incredibly empty and meaningless at times? It's because we keep talking about what God might want us to do and what God doesn't want us to do. But if you don't 
know who you are and what this is all about. Like, all that other stuff seems meaningless. Thanks for that. Intermission? (laughs) Was that a phone? (laughs) All right, well, let's close in prayer on that end. (laughs) Ah. Let's roll with it, folks. I do wonder, though, I do wonder how many of us, ever since we stepped into conversations about faith, right, and maybe you're not even there yet, maybe this is new for you, the primary content of those conversations is do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But what I believe is if we could just have an honest conversation about who God has created you to be, and you could allow God to begin to change your mind and to help to see yourself as God has created you, then maybe we'd never have to have another conversation about what God wants you to do or doesn't want you to do because it would just overflow out of your understanding of who you are. This morning, I want to look at a passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 7. And it's a, it's a story of a familiar character as told uh, by a not-so-familiar one. And uh, it's a message uh, that Stephen gives. It's the only one that we have on record of him giving uh, and he's going to talk about, uh, about Moses. And this is what he says. So we're going to Acts chapter 7. If you have a Bible, we'd love to get you one if you don't. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 20. And uh, why don't I grab my Bible? That'd be a good idea. Acts chapter 7, verse 20. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his parents' home. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense. Sorry. This is easier when I'm not holding a microphone. Okay. And he avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed... An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear, and he did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. 
Pretty cool story. Pretty epic guy. Played a big role in the history of God's people. One of, one of the things that I love about this particular story is, is it kind of debunks the way that so many of us uh, come to expect and understand and even hope that God would move and intervene in our lives. Right? Because we tend to think that, you know what, if, if I do the right things, right, here's my list of do's, and I don't do all the wrong things, or at least most of them, that then God is more likely to use me potentially to do the extraordinary, to move in my life in a profound way. But then when we inevitably mess up, like we step out, right? And we think that we're disqualified. But if that's your understanding of the scriptures and how God works, like I know you don't read the Bible very much. Uh, because the same story of Moses' story is the one that we find over and over and over. And it's that we, the people we find God using time and time again are sometimes the biggest failures and the biggest screw-ups, people who failed miserably and who experienced a profound amount of misery at times as a result. And this is Moses' story. We're told that Moses was born uh, to slaves who were being brutally oppressed under Egyptian, their Egyptian masters. Uh, I mean, just to begin the story, I mean, can you imagine being born into a worse condition than to be born into that? This is where Moses' story's story begins. And then to make matters worth, right, worse, right about the time that he's born, uh, we're told that uh, the Pharaoh decides that he's going to kill all of the baby boys. Right, so immediately, Moses is born not only into slavery, but into brutality and violence and generational genocide. Right, it wouldn't be that much unlike if you were a Jewish child being born into Nazi Germany when it was at its worst in the death camps. And this is the context in which his story, his story begins. And, and while it would have been tragic and awful to be killed, uh, I do wonder if it was really that much better to actually survive. I mean, can you imagine being the only child to survive? To have all these mourning parents who just went through the most horrendous thing you can imagine, losing their children, and you are a walking reminder, a living reminder of that pain. Something they would definitely rather try to move on and forget. But every time they see you, they're reminded of what happened to their child. To be disdained by your own people that way. So where Moses begins. And then to add insult to injury in Moses' story, Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter, and through this bizarre series of events, uh, he grows up in the household of the very man who wanted him dead, who killed all of his own people. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, that's your father figure? The guy who tried to kill you and killed the, the kids of all of your friends and your family? Right, what does that do to a young boy, a young man? But this is their dad. Right? This is the closest thing he has to a father figure in the home that he grew up. And then as he grew, of course, Moses began to realize, you know what, I'm, I don't look like them. I'm, I'm not Egyptian. And so he knew and he experienced, he was never fully embraced as Egyptian. He was an outsider with the Egyptians. And yet he wasn't amongst his own people either. Right? So there's this conflict of identity. Like, I would venture to guess, probably one of the, the core questions that he struggled with is the same question that so many of us struggle with, is who am I? Like, where is home? Who are my people? Because he wasn't embraced, either with, his, with the Israelites or with the Egyptians. He was kind of in the middle ground. Can anything come of this mess of a life that is mine? And then we're told that Moses has this sense of destiny, of purpose, uh, and he, he feels the need to, to act heroically and to do something noble. And so he's walking and he sees uh, an Egyptian 
um, beating one of his, his own countrymen, the Israelites, and he steps in and he kills the guy. And this is his heroic act. Like, how broken is his moral compass? How messed up is this guy right here? He kills a man, and he thinks it's the right thing to do until afterwards, and he hides the body. And so the very next day, right, he's walking again, and what he did in darkness is immediately exposed. Right, he's called into question. He's rejected now by his own people. And rather than like, turn and face the music, right, rather than pay, like, just deal with the consequences and resolve right, with his character to just deal with the consequences of what he's done, he runs and he hides. Like, is there anything noble about this guy yet? Is there any indication that he's going to live an extraordinary life and be used by God in extraordinary ways? Because so far, all I see is pain, heartache, suffering, and evil. So Moses runs. He's a crisis of identity. He was a killer. He was a coward. He ran for his life. He's wandering in the wilderness, and it tells us that he bands together with another tribe, a different people he didn't know adding to his, his identity crisis, right? He's been rejected by the Egyptians who now want his life for killing a man. He's been rejected by the Israelites. Like, who are you to lead us, to judge us? And now he's with a completely foreign people. Who am I? Right? He's a man with no home and no people. And then the, the crazy thing is, when we read this story, this, this is how Stephen begins telling us the story of Moses. And all of that, the very first verse, verse 20, at that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. And I love that. Now, in a sense, Stephen is cheating here, right? Because he knows the end of the story. So he's like any good Jew. He's, he's read the Torah. He knows the story of Moses. And so at the very beginning of telling us Moses' story, he's projecting onto him what he knows Moses is going to accomplish in the days and the months and the years ahead. So he knows he's going to be an extraordinary person. So he says... At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. It's amazing how clear things are in the rearview mirror, isn't it? In hindsight, everything's twenty twenty, And this is where he begins. But it's kind of odd. I think it's kind of odd that he even has to say that. To say, when Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. Right, has there ever been an ordinary child? Like, if you've ever had kids, were your kids ordinary? You know? Like, when, I, when we had Paige, and brought Paige, well, and she was born, and I'm standing in the hospital, and I have this little human being um, that I'm responsible for, my little girl, and I held her. I remember thinking, this is the most extraordinary human being to ever grace this planet. She is amazing. She's the most beautiful thing on the face of the earth. Extraordinary, right? And then we had Chloe, and I learned it happened again. She's just as beautiful, just as extraordinary, or maybe we should just take a poll. Like, who had the ordinary kids? You know, who said, oh, thank goodness, they're ordinary. All the other kids are extraordinary, but at least ours are normal. Right? It's, it's, no, your kids are always the extraordinary ones. It's the other kids who are normal. Right? You ever hear parents talk about their, their kids? It's awesome. Because they're just the most amazing things, especially when they're young. So they're like, oh, did, you know what? She's crawling now. You know, that's way quicker than other children. You know, it's like it's so competitive from, like, day one. You know, or like... Look at him. He, you know, he can't speak. He can't move. He can't do anything. But look at the way his eyes wandered the room. He's so observant and perceptive. He found his foot yesterday. You can tell he's brilliant. You know? 
Like, parents do this all the time. Like, our kids are the most extraordinary thing. Like, your kids are never the brats. The other kids are the brats. Right? My kids are perfect. But the truth is, there's never been an ordinary child that's ever been born. Right? But the problem is, is that so many of us die so ordinary. Somewhere between our first breath and our last breath, we lose some profound part of who we are. Right? Pablo Picasso in a great quote, and this is the way that he put it. He said, every child is born an artist. The problem is staying an artist when you grow up. Every child is born an artist. The problem is staying an artist when you grow up. See, every child, when they're born, is no ordinary child. There's something extraordinary within them. They're absolutely unique. But what we have to fight against from day one is this this almost like magnetic pull to settle into the ordinary, right? to be who other people want us to be or expect us to be rather than God, who God has created us to be, to settle to be mediocre, to be less, to passively surrender those things that make us so unique. I recently heard someone share uh, the results of this study uh, about the FedEx logo. Um, you want to throw the photo up there? Like, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I've learned this this week. This, this service is brought to you by FedEx, by the way. Um, so there's, a, there's an arrow in the logo um, that's designed within it. You see it? Some of you see it? I'll give you a clue. Right there. Um, it took me forever. I stared at that thing. Even when I knew it was there, I couldn't find it. I was like, where is this logo? Is it a... Or where's this arrow? Is it German arrow? Like, are there arrows different? Because I couldn't find it, and I actually had to cheat. I couldn't find it. I had to cheat and, like, see the picture where it was circled. Um, But they did this study. So they did this study. It's fascinating. What they found is that there's actually a small percentage of adults that can see it immediately. As soon as they see it, like, oh, yeah, there's an arrow, of course, like some of you. Uh, And then there's a, a very small percentage of people, if they stare at it long enough, like 30 seconds, they can pick it out. But the vast majority of adults can't pick it out. Like, they'll just, like me, just stare at it, and they don't see it. But they did this study and compared adults and kids. It's fascinating. What they found with kids, uh, 95% of the kids that they did this study with saw it immediately. So it shows the arrow. Without even thinking, 95% were immediately able to point it out, compared to just 5% of the adults. 5%. There's something that happens in us between childhood and adulthood where we lose our ability to see. Something within us changes profoundly. I wonder how many of us have, have stopped seeing the world from the unique perspective that we were created to see the world and to live our lives. When Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. And of course, with Moses, is, is so much of his, his early story is just filled with tragedy and massive failure. Right? He runs and he hides. For 40 years, he hides. Like in my Bible, it's like that sentence is like that long. But that's 40 years. 40 years of running from who God has created him to be and hiding. But then, in the wilderness, in his shame, in his hiding, God meets him and calls him out. And it changes the rest of his life And the reason that I think this is so incredibly important is that despite all the mistakes that he made, despite all the failure and the crisis and tragedy that characterized his life 
up to a certain point, when he met God and he followed God's purpose for his life, he refused to just settle into the ordinary. Right? He was obedient despite the failure previous. He was obedient to God's call on his life. He refused to conform. And when he met God and followed him, it changed everything. And the reason, the reason that I want to start this series here, and the reason I think this is so important for us, is that we live in the exact same world that Moses did. Now, a lot of things have changed since then. But a lot of things are still the same, especially when it comes to us. And there's a magnetic pull. Like, there's a pressure. And maybe we just put it on ourselves. Maybe it's something that we put on one another. But there's a pull to conform. There is a pressure to settle into mediocrity, to just be who other people already believe you are, already expect you to be, right? Just like in middle school, just a grown-up version, rather than to fight to become that person that God has uniquely created you to be. I'm sure you're wondering what this is, uh, so I'm finally going to address it. So this is, a, this is what we'll call... Um, Steve the Swell Christian and his girlfriend, Jennifer. Yeah. I couldn't come up with anything witty right there. I tried really hard. I'm sorry. We have expectations within not just the broader culture, but within Christianity. And oftentimes in religion, it's worse when it comes to conformity. Historically, there have been times where religion has been used to accomplish extraordinary good, but there have been times throughout human history where religion has been used as a tool to manipulate and to control. And we're not exempt because oftentimes we do the exact same thing that the world does and we present a certain image of what it means to be a good Christian. Right, so we got this guy, he's got his awesome Christian t-shirt. My lifeguard walks on water. That's awesome. I think that's Kevin's. Not Kevin, your shirt. Thanks for letting us borrow it. <laughs> He's got his uh, Christian cross. He's got his really cool rimmed glasses. Those are mine. Um, and then uh, he's got his iPod, which is dead, but we'll say it has really great Christian music on it, like Stephen Curtis Chapman and DC Talk, uh, Michael W. Smith. I don't know anybody newer than that. That's a sad reality. So just insert whatever the hip Christian music is. Uh, he does have some skinny jeans, some Tom shoes. And check this out. This is how you know he's from Mosaic. Tattoo. See the tattoo? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then he, <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, track. Got a track in his pocket so he doesn't have to tip at the restaurant. Right? Don't do that, by the way, ever. If you can't tip generously, don't go out to eat. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Right, but the details of this change, right? There's all different tribes within faith, within Christianity. This image will change a little bit, even just going down the road to a different church, obviously, right? Maybe not the tattoo or whatever. Skinny jeans, you know, Toms. Nothing wrong with skinny jeans and Toms and tattoos. But what we end up doing is the exact same thing that the world does, is we create this model, this form that already exists. We say, this is what it means to be a good Christian. This is what faith looks like. This is what faithfulness looks like. And it was never meant to be this conforming thing, as if, as if God's ultimate vision for your life is for you to conform to be like everybody else. And nothing could be further than the truth. Check this out. Listen to the words of Romans tw uh, 12 through 2. All right? Got it up? 
This is what it says. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Do not conform. Do not conform. Do not conform. Write that down somewhere. Write it on your forehead if you have to. Do not conform, but let God transform the way that you understand this world, the way that you understand yourself, so that you can begin to live the life that you were created to live. Do not conform. This week I was having coffee with a, a guy, and, and he um, didn't consider himself to be a Christian. He's been a part of this community for a while. And, and we're hanging out, having coffee, and, and just talking about life and faith and, and tough questions, you know, when it comes to following Jesus and stuff. And, and I just said, you know what, can I ask you a personal question? And uh, he said, yeah, go for it. And I said, what, what are the big reservations? Like, what big fears and hang-ups do you have about following Jesus? Like, what would stand in the way of you just going all in? And uh, he said, that's easy. Um, he said, one, uh, I would lose a number of friends immediately. Um, but he said, more than that, though, he said, I would have to come to a place where I could accept that God has made me exactly as I am. Uh, and, and he went on to share with me through tears that there's p- certain parts of his, his personality and um, certain physical things that have made it very, very difficult for him. Things that have led to... Uh, a good amount of suffering, both for him and the people that he cares most about. And, and he said, I don't, he said, I don't know that I, 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 I could understand why God would make me this way. Like, why would God create me in a way that is fundamentally broken, or in a way that has caused me and other people so much suffering? So that would be, that, that's the hardest thing. And so this kind of, you know, mess with me. I mean, that's heavy heavy stuff. I mean, as a pastor, right, I'm supposed to have the answers, like, oh, well, this is why. You know, but through tears, I mean, this is, this is hard. And, and the reality is, is like, I know it's not just him. I, I know that many of us have had parts of our unique stories that are fraught with lots of pain and lots of suffering. Things that maybe we have no control over. Things that people did to us. And, and ultimately, like, I, I just got to land. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know why God allows a lot of things to continue to exist. I, I don't know why God allows for war and, and famine right, and poverty and human trafficking, child trafficking, you know, rape. Like, I don't understand why God just allows those things to keep existing. But what I do know is that it was never in the plan. Right? Creation one, in creation 1.0, right? the original version, there was no pain. There was no suffering. There was no death. And what I know is also at the end of the story, when Jesus comes back and there's a new heaven and a new earth, there's no more suffering, no more pain. But the hard part is that you and I live in this middle area right, where God doesn't take an eraser to his creation but instead invites us to play a unique part in being a part of healing, right? to living amongst the pain and the brokenness and the suffering, and to do everything that we can to allow him to use us to bring beauty in the midst of it. See, I don't, I don't understand why 
God allows us to suffer sometimes, but what I do know is that if you will let him, that he, will, he refuses to let your suffering be wasted. I don't think God ever desires for you and I to experience pain and suffering, but I do believe that when we let him, that he will never let that suffering be wasted. Right, just a couple ways. Like, this 